0: Well, in the uh, run up to Valentine's Day, my wife got a little bit mushy. She, uh, paid, she paid me a compliment. And uh, we were riding our bikes together, hope to be honor, become honorary members of the UPC for missional, bike, cycling for missional community. So we're out on our bikes. And uh, she says, you know the good thing about you is you know you're not good. <laughs> And I thought, come on, you've been with me for 30 years and this is all you've got? I was trying to come up with some kind of snarky response when I I looked back over and she looked choke up. She was like emotion. And I thought, wait a minute, she's not joking. There's something here. So what does she, she, the good thing about you is that you know you're not good. She wasn't talking about my shame, my sense that, uh, you know, I'm just not a good guy. A lot of people have shame. She was talking about the fact that I know what to do with my shame, which is give it to the mercy of God. It was my experience of mercy that keeps me from having to try to impress you, to impress myself, to hide the parts of myself that I know are, are not pleasing to the Lord. Uh, it's it's my experience of mercy. Uh, where I find creativity, where where I find joy, where I find peace, where I find empathy, where I find motivation. You know, the good thing about you is you know you're not good. But you know you have been made good in the love of our God. Mercy. Living with mercy is essential for exiles. It's not just a survival skill. It's a mission strategy. We see this in the life of Daniel. Let me just take a moment to review as we come to the last message in the series of Daniel. You know, what we've seen is that one way or another, each of us is an exile, if you think about it. We're all exiles. Jesus says we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And what we're called to do as exiles is to believe the promise of the coming transformation of God in Jesus Christ. Today, we'll see Daniel, uh, we'll meet him on the rooftop praying where we left him last week, and then we'll follow him from the rooftop down into the city, where we'll see uh, he wrestles with a question, how do you serve and bless people who don't believe what you believe or live the way you live? Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 6. You find that on page 726 of your pew Bible. And I'd ask everyone to open there because I'd like to have you read the latter half of the chapter. I'll read the first few verses and we won't take time to read the whole prayer together in corporate worship, but I recommend it to you. It's a prayer for mercy and it would be a great prayer to pray through in your own private devotions. But listen to the first six verses. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the, in the first year of Darius, son of uh, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, that's a hard one. That's why I want to read it for you. I'm taking the fall for us all there on that name. Uh, by birth, Mede who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love, with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Now, if you're able, would you turn to uh, verse 17 and stand with me and let's read this culmination of the prayer together. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. We'll read Daniel nine seventeen through to verse 19. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, Let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act and do not delay. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people bear your name." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. A prayer for mercy. In the heart of an enemy city, here we find an Israelite, Daniel, praying for God's great mercies. You might ask, why Why would he do that? Well, he actually tells us why in verse 2. Did you notice he speaks of the books? Literally, this would translate the scrolls. We think that he's referring to the two letters uh, that Jeremiah the prophet wrote from Jerusalem to Babylon, sent just after the first wave of exiles were taken away. He's reading the prophet of Jeremiah. He tells us that. So let's just picture this. Imagine Daniel in a room somewhere in Babylon, bent over a scroll, a letter that Jeremiah had written, studying it in this scroll. by the way, we have the substance of this letter in Jeremiah 29, which if you want to look at you can find on page 639. And in the letter, Jeremiah essentially says, you're in exile now. It's going to, like, it's going to last 70 years. Um, it's a lifetime. Uh, While you're there, build uh, houses, plant gardens, get married, have grandchildren, all this cultural engagement with the city. And then in verse seven, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city and pray on its behalf. Daniel tells us he's been reading that and then he does it. He does it. So we imagined him rolling up the scroll and covering it with leather, putting it in a chest somewhere safe. And then he goes over to a wooden ladder and he begins to climb towards the ceiling. It's not as easy as it used to be. He's 82 years old now, Daniel. And he gets up onto the rooftop of his apartment, Um, very flat roofs. And uh, to get fresh air, oftentimes people would erect a little upper chamber we would think of it like a pop up or something, a covered porch or something. But from there, uh, he can turn his face towards Jerusalem and pray, as he does three times a day, every day, we're told. Before he falls to his knees to pray this prayer, he looks out at Babylon. This is the city to which the Lord has sent him as an exile. And It was a great city, Babylon. Herodotus tells us, the greatest city of the ancient world, both in size and importance. As far as the eye can see, there is Babylon doing its thing. But if you're Daniel, you've got to acknowledge this is a tough city. This is not a good city in many ways. This is the city that devastated Jerusalem. This is the city that took Daniel into captivity and holds him in servitude to this very day. It's a violent city, a hostile city a city that commits atrocities with neighbors near and far, there's something inside of Daniel that's going to want to pray against Babylon, right? We see that spirit in Psalm 137, where the psalmist writes, oh, daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall they be who pay you back when you have done to us. And there's Daniel, and he's going to want to say, oh, Babylon, you devastator. You know, uh, your violence, your injustice, your insensitivity to the poor, all of these things will one day catch up with you. A judgment day is coming, and you all are in big trouble. But he doesn't. He seeks the welfare of this city. He serves it. He blesses it. He prays for it, which, <laughs> and that raises some questions. Uh, For example, how do you serve and bless people who don't believe what you believe or live the way you live? I'm thinking of the fraternity that asks you to join them in their binge drinking. I'm thinking of the manager at your workplace who said, "Ah, you know what? That project's back on. I worked out some creative accounting and we can afford it now. I'm, I'm talking about your roommate who's asking you to pay another month's rent, but They haven't paid you back for the summer yet. Talking about neighbors who keep asking you to sign petitions for things that you don't believe in. What do you do with these people? Of course, we want to love them. They're our neighbors, but we don't really want to endorse everything they're up to. We want to help them, but we don't want to enable them when they're doing things that are harmful. We want to be people who build bridges, but we don't always necessarily want to cross those bridges, do we? It's a hard question, but it's an essential question. We have to really wrestle with this, because we're called to join Jesus among our neighbors. And our neighbors won't always believe what we believe or live the way we live. And So what do we do? I think Daniel is a particularly good model for us because and I just love this. Did you notice that Daniel has this way of moving into the public square so winsomely? We find him engaging in the, uh, in the academy, in professional spheres, in the political sphere. There he is. <laughs> so what does Daniel do? How does he make that work? Let me share with you three things he doesn't do. Cloister. Compromise, compartmentalize. Daniel doesn't cloister himself. And this is always a temptation for exiles to say, you know what? They're not good. We're good. Going to build a wall and isolate ourselves from others to cloister. It's a natural thing to do. Uh, oftentimes, freshman students will hang out with their high school buddies, <coughs> immigrants coming to a new Country will also oftentimes seek out one another for safety and security. Even Christians sometimes can create a little bit of a bubble or a, a subculture that we live inside. Have you ever heard Christians speaking Christianese? You ever heard that? It's a kind of a phrase. Uh, there's no phrase book that I'm aware of, but we say things like, put that on my heart, or covet your prayers, brother, or lead out when ready, or I struggle with that. You, know, you hear these phrases and go, wait a minute, what does that mean? That's a, a sign of cloistering, and it's not a bad thing in and of itself. But Daniel does not engage with that. That's not his way. Uh, he actually engages the city. He enters into it. He moves from his rooftop down into the city, almost as though he were a Babylonian. He's not. He's an Israelite. But at any given day, if you saw him, you say, I, you could make the mistake, is that guy a Babylonian or a Persian? He might be. He takes a Babylonian name. He he you know, he, he rises to the top of his class with a Babylonian Education, And by the way, if you think about uh, the sciences in Babylon at that time, divination, magic, um, sorcery, these are dark arts. For an Israelite, it's kind of, wow, that's really, your skin t- 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 starts to crawl. And somehow, Daniel makes it through all of that, and he excels at it. He engages in work. He serves kings who are oppressive kings, even enemy kings. He even develops an affection for these people. He seems to have a genuine affection for Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar gets bad news, Daniel's greatly distressed. He's worried about him. Christopher Wright, the great Old Testament scholar, says, Daniel and his three friends accepted a massive degree of cultural adjustment before they reached a line that they would not cross. Why? Because they were engaging with the city. They weren't cloistering. Also, Daniel doesn't compromise himself. This is another temptation for exiles to say, you know, hey, what's good for them might be good for me as well. Let me try and start to assimilate into your host culture. I worked with students for many years in Boston. And one of our students went away to Australia for a semester abroad. He was, a, he was you know... Boston guy as Boston comes. He's packing the garage and the, parking the car in the garage at Harvard Yad to watch the sacks. And he comes back from Australia and he's saying, "Good day, mate. No worries." And we're like, "Wow, what happened?" Well, he just started to he absorbed the culture. And uh, and and Daniel doesn't do this. He does not compromise his principles. He doesn't adopt the principles of the people in that city. He resists them. Yes, he goes from the roof to the city, but he also keeps going from the city back to the roof three times a day to center his life again, to remember that he serves a holy God, to remember the covenant that God has made with him. He doesn't eat the king's food. Remember, he's a vegetarian. Praise God. He's not to be bought by the king's silver in chapter 5. He doesn't participate in the idolatry. That's why he ends up in the lion's den. No, he doesn't compromise his principles. And then the third thing, he doesn't compartmentalize himself, you know? This is another temptation for us. We may not cloister ourselves, we may not compromise ourselves, but we'll take our principles and we'll put them in a box and we'll try to protect them there and 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 not say anything about it the rest of the day. So we have a kind of a Sunday me, and then there's a uh, Monday through Saturday me. And what's good for you is good for you, but what's good for me is good for me. And I try to prioritize my faith, I keep it in a box. It's just part of my life. Daniel doesn't do that. He allows his faith to affect all of his life, to integrate with his work, his politics. What's on the roof comes out when he's in the city, out of him. It's almost like he can't help it. And I love that, the natural way. You know, people around him, they know he's a person of faith. They know he prays. That's how they trap him. When he's at a party and people are drinking too much alcohol, he speaks up and points to the writing on the wall. When he's with the king, and the king is bragging about his great city, and I made it for myself and my own glory, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he was He's gloating about this accomplishment. And, and, and yet Daniel says, but, by the way, you, you built the city on the backs of the poor, and that's wrong. He believes in justice. So we see, for example, in uh, Daniel 4.27, Daniel says this, Therefore, a king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Uh, remember, righteousness and justice are the same word in Hebrew. Practice justice, he says. Break off your sins and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Wow, here's an Israelite holding a Babylonian accountable to God's law, the covenant. So he he doesn't compromise himself. So, So how does Daniel serve and bless people who don't believe what he believes or live the way he lives? Well, he doesn't cloister, he engages. He doesn't compromise, he resists. And he doesn't compartmentalize. He integrates his life. But I want to point to something deeper than that, because it's not just about what he does and doesn't do and the practicality of this. There's a deeper well of spirituality from which Daniel's life is lived. And at the bottom of that well, there is what he calls God's great mercies, God's great mercies. This, I believe, is what Anne was pointing to, and this is clearly what Daniel's prayer points to the great mercies of God. If you have Jesus, you're good, even when you're not good. Listen to how Daniel prays in chapter 9, verse 18, second part of the the verse. He says "To, to his God, we do not present our supplications before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. I don't come to you with my resume and say, look at how good I've been. Look at my righteousness. I come to you and I point to you, not me, you and your great mercies. This is the heart of it. This is the well out of which he lives his life. And this is what he's praying. Now, if you're reading carefully, you might say, George, wait a minute, this prayer is not a prayer for Babylon, is it? It's a prayer for Jerusalem. It's a prayer for Daniel. He's not praying for the Babylonians here. And I want to say, if you notice that exactly, that's the whole point. Daniel knows he needs mercy. Daniel doesn't sit up on that rooftop and say, God, you got to fix these people down here below. He's saying, God, I need your mercy. I have sinned. I am a broken person. Now, oh, it'd be so easy to judge Babylon to say, Babylon, you devastator, you know? But Daniel knows he's a devastator too. We see this in verse five. Look at how clear he is. He says, we, speaking of the Israelites, he's, he's it's a corporate prayer. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and your ordinances. He's up there saying, it's not just them. It's me too. We all need mercy. And he knows a God who, when we come to him in this way, says, I know you've done wrong. I'm not here to compromise what's right or wrong, but I forgive you. I'm here to embrace you. I will not judge you. I will hold you in my great mercies. This is the gospel. I want you to think of a man that I met this week. Uh, I'll call him Craig. Craig. Craig lost control of his life recently. He destroyed his life. He destroyed his family's life. Adultery. He committed adultery. Uh, It seemed innocent at first. It started with fantasies and soon pornography, and that became an addiction. And then there were these hookups, and it horrified him. And it's just, he would say the shame is not just real, it's overwhelming. He knows what he's done is wrong. He doesn't know what to do about it. Wonders if he can even begin to put his life back together. And so just let me, I'll come back to Craig, but just think for a minute, what would you, what would you do with Craig? Let's imagine he's your neighbor. Actually, for all you know, he is your neighbor. I know for some of you, he, Craig actually is your neighbor. Would you avoid him and cloister? Would you affirm what he's done, compromise your principles? Would you ignore him and compartmentalize, you know, just keep playing basketball and hope the whole marriage thing never comes up? No, you wouldn't do that. You'd do what Daniel does. You'd withhold judgment, but you'd build relationship with him. You'd walk with him. You'd try to understand him. You would love him. You'd speak truth into his life, and you'd keep pointing him to the well where you have found mercy that's so important to you. Because the truth is, this is who we are as well. You know, we're Craig's. One way or another, uh, we're devastators. Just like Craig, just like Daniel, just like the Babylonians. That's who we are here. I like what Martin, Marty says, that the church provides an invaluable service to society just by getting millions of sinners off the street for one hour on Sunday mornings. Right? I mean, here we are for an hour at least. To Seattle, we say, you're welcome. The streets are, the streets are safer while we're here. Do you, see what, do you see what the Lord is saying to us here? through this that, man, the way that you relate to people who are not like you, don't think, or do what you do, is to appreciate, first and foremost, that we're all aliens and strangers before a good and holy God, and yet he embraces us in his mercy. And you know, you can't share mercy without having experienced mercy. And so Daniel's routine of keep coming back and confessing his sin and claiming God's steadfast, loving kindness nevertheless holds him tight in an experience of mercy that then he carries out into the academic, into the professional, and into the political spheres. I want to just say that if you are aware of your need for mercy today, if while we've been here, the Holy Spirit has surfaced for you some of the pain and brokenness and hurt of your life Your own rebel heart, let me remind you, dear friend, of Jesus. Jesus says to us all, Come to me. Jesus says to us all, Lift me up before the Father in your worship. Don't lift up your own righteousness, don't lift up your own resume. Don't appeal to what you've done or haven't done or the promise you'll make to do better. Forget about your righteousness. Don't come on the ground of your righteousness, Daniel says. I, I don't do that. I come to you, Father, on the, on the, on the ground of your great mercy, your covenant promise, what you've said to us, that you forgive sinners. And so I come as a sinner claiming that forgiveness. Joyce Baldwin's a wonderful Old Testament scholar. and She says, when you look at chapter um, Nine as a whole, and you come down to the culmination. and Daniel starts to talk about the end of sin and the atonement. She, she says it's like, it's like Daniel's able to, to look into the future. Daniel seems to be realizing this. She says that God has found a way of forgiving sin without being untrue to his own righteousness. This assurance was what the prayer has been feeling after. It was a great longing expressed in the Old Testament as a whole. That God would not compromise his righteousness or justice but that God would not give up his love for all of us, even though we're sinners. And the only way those two things can come together and not explode all of creation is through the cross of Jesus Christ, where God judges all sin and evil in himself for the sake of his beloved creatures. See, as Daniel stands on the rooftop, he's not just looking through space, horizontally, across Babylon, He's looking, it seems, through time. This is what Joyce Baldwin is saying. He, he, he's looking for what the Old Testament has yearned for all along. And she, There's a story arc in the background. And Daniel is a good Israelite. He knows the story arc. And I want to make sure we know it too. Creation, fall, redemption, completion. These four movements uh, describe the arc of what God is doing in the cosmos. God has made all that is, and he made it all good, creation. But then we turn our backs on on God. The world is broken and fallen. Nothing is the way it should be, fall. But God steps into the brokenness and is a victim of the brokenness to overturn the brokenness, redemption. And now we live in this space between redemption and the completion of the fulfillment of that redemption, where things are both good and not good at the same time until Jesus comes to renew all things. As Daniel prays, he holds up this grand narrative before the Father. This is, what you, this is who you are, and this is what you're doing. And I appeal, I appeal to your mercy uh, on the basis of who you are. I, I love what Tom Torrance says, my favorite theologian. He says, worship and prayer are not ways in which we express ourselves, but ways in which we hold up before the Father, his beloved Son. It continues, in which we take refuge in his atoning sacrifice and make that our only plea. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. When you worship, when you pray, don't see it as a self-expression. This is who I am. No, try to express who Jesus Christ is. Hold him up. He is your representative, we've learned. He is your mediator. He is your vicar. Uh, He is the great high priest who brings atonement into our lives. So we say, look what he's done, not like what we've done. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what transforms our city, the great mercy of God in Jesus Christ. We don't approach our neighbors with our righteousness and say, hey, we're church people. We are slick, fine, and wonderful. And if you do what we do and think what we think, you can be slick fine and wonderful, too, right? That's not what it is. We don't. We approach our neighbors with Jesus. We lift up Jesus, and we say, "Look at the mercy I've received in Jesus. Look at the mercy that you have in Jesus as well." When I was in college, the education reform movement described a, a one strategy as a school within a school movement school within a school philosophy was that, you know, given a large urban school system that's complex and chronically under-resourced, we can't really fix the whole. And so what we try to do is embed small little schools within the school, and we will resource those schools and, and see transformation that then starts to percolate out and affect the whole school within a school movement. And I really think that that's God's strategy. I I do. Because just look what he's done for Babylon. He sent this little circle of friends, uh, starting with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who experienced mercy together right in the heart of Babylon with the thought that that mercy would then percolate and overflow and transform the city. It happened in the first century when the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ went out to share the good news. And where did they go? They went first to the synagogues. These little huddles of Jews who gathered together across the Jewish diaspora around the known world at that time, around the Mediterranean basin. And they'd share the good news of the gospel. And there, an experience of God's mercy in Jesus Christ would start to affect the cities of this region. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're forming these formational communities across the city of Seattle. We're doing this so that we can be little cities of mercy within the city and that the mercy of Jesus will percolate out and overflow into the lives of our neighbors. Cities within a city. The reason I uh, met Craig was that one of you has been walking with him. One of you has seen his distress, and because Craig trusts you, he reached out to you, and you've had a chance over these recent days to watch him discover mercy. You, you've had a front row seat as Jesus is beginning to put his life back together. And uh, Craig has given me permission to share with us today a song that he's written. And I want, to, as I read these lyrics and close my message, I just invite you to think about the your need for mercy, to receive the word from your Savior that even when you're not good, you're still good. And I'd like to also think about your neighbors. Think about what it is that you have that would be helpful to them. Craig writes, darkness surrounding in the brightest light of day, whispers condemning remind me of my shame. What a mess I've made. Everything I've touched is broken, and I deserve this pain. How I deserve this pain. But in this mire of mine, you were there, ever there. When I ran, you ran faster. When I sank, you reached deeper. When I hid, you kept searching, seeking, loving, calling. You called out my name. You called out my name, child of God, child of God, come home. Would you pray with me? We can't outrun you. We can't escape beyond your reach. We can't hide where you will not find us in your great mercies, O God. And we thank you for the good news of that. We thank you for not being surprised or scandalized by the brokenness in our lives or in this world, but by stepping into it to receive the shame and scorn yourself and to rise from the dead to break the power of its curse in this creation. We pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to help us in our unbelief and to recommission us as people who are beacons of mercy in the world today. Help us navigate the complexity of this mission as we move forward. In Christ's name. Amen.